A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. All right, then, let's get down to business. The business today being Jim Campolongo. He really is one of the great, unique players uh, on the planet. There's, there's a tradition of incredible tele players that kind of slip under the radar of a lot of folks, but come to be known, especially to musicians the world over, as being the best at what they do. Roy Buchanan and Danny Gatton come to mind. And uh, add Jim Campolongo to that list. I'm too young to have seen Roy Buchanan, but I did get to see Danny Gatton. And um, when I was living in Boston, I was about 18. And uh, Danny Gatton was playing at a club there called The Channel. And I used to go to these clubs because I was underage and hang out at the back door like at around noon. And the bands would usually show up a little after that. And I would help carry their crud into the bar and they would undoubtedly give me a backstage pass and I would hang out backstage to see the show. <laughs> I got to see a, a ton of shows that way. And it was great for me, actually. I got to see all kinds of cool stuff and had some great experiences and interactions with bands. Uh, Danny Gatton was one of those and he was um, just the nicest guy. And Jim Campolongo seems to follow in that tradition as well. We've never met, but he took a big chunk of time out of his day to speak with me. And uh, I'm not going to be doing big elaborate intros this season, like I have done before, um, due to uh, having callers in like we're doing. But I will tell you that Jim has been a mainstay around New York for the last 20 years, most of which time he's had a weekly gig that, you know, if you were a guitar player in that city or anywhere near, you just had to be there to see him. He is an imaginative player, fiery. He's improvising finely crafted solos that are tight and loose at the same time. He's known for monstrous guitar tone, and he's a great writer of thoughtful, quirky, and beautiful instrumental music. He also had a band for a while with Nora Jones called The Little Willies, and they made a couple records. But for the most part, he's played around New York with his trio 
or other bands. And he, he has a recent project with Luca Benedetti called Honeyfingers. And uh, they've made a couple records that are super cool too. And also Jim has a huge catalog of lessons for sale and further background information. And all of his music can be found at jimcampolongo.com. I am encouraging you to go there and get his albums and dig deep. All right, let's get on with the show. Enjoy my conversation with Jim Campolongo. Where are you anyway? Are you in Nashville? Yeah, that's right. You guys had a tornado that was terrible right before this. Man, it's so crazy. Like I I actually just we got a little stir crazy yesterday and went for a drive over to East Nashville um and the devastation there is like I you know, I've seen pictures of it obviously, but I live about 10 miles south of there and the tornado didn't touch where I am, but man, just seeing some of the buildings and like just seeing the 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 focused energy of the tornado like one building will be completely destroyed and then right next to it it didn't get touched it's crazy and you know there's all these people that are screwed man like their houses are destroyed and businesses are gone and and now we've got this it's so bad for a lot of a lot of people that are in that area yeah that's just you know i mean my mother has the saying if you have to look at the bright side you know things are going really badly. <laughs> but thinking of like losing your home and the, the implications of that and p- possibly your family and then this. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's bananas. Uh, that makes me feel like you know, I got nothing to complain about. And I mean, you know, the tornado happened and there was a lot of rallying around the city, which was good. And there was, you know, like fundraisers and all this stuff happened right away, which was awesome. And it was good to see that that like community gathered around the people that really needed it. But then the then this thing hits and everyone has to just go inside and like forget about all that. I mean, you know, they're not forgotten about, but there's nothing you can do right there's now. Nothing. Like, yeah, it's really yeah. tough. Can you just give me a little rundown of, you know, like how, like as a musician, how this whole thing is affecting you? You know, I don't want to obviously spend the whole time talking about this, um, but I do want to get a bit of a taste for it. Like, obviously, everything's been canceled. Like, you're at ground zero there. There's, It's crazy how bad it's getting in the New York area. What's, um, like, on the ground, is it like, are people kind of feeling panicky or, or, or are you just kind of holding up and, and waiting for this all to pass? Well... More the latter than than anything. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm over 60 and I have a, a long history of uh, respiratory problems. Oh, really? So I'm kind of, uh, and it's funny when I talk to my friends, I find out I'm not alone or a guy I've known my whole life. I, I found out he had asthma, you know, <clears throat> so uh, some of us are more vulnerable uh, in theory. So I've been for a while, about three weeks, I've been quarantining. Right before I quarantined, I flew to Boston, did a clinic at Berkeley and played two shows. One I sat in with Duke Levine. It was amazing. He's amazing. And then I played a show in packed, you know, uh, small clubs. Yeah. And the whole time, 
I mean, I just felt like when I was at the hotel and pushing lobby with my first finger exposed, yeah. you know, I was like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to find the date because it's like a million years ago. Yeah. March 3rd, 4th and 5th we're talking. So, right. So early. It was early, but you know, I, I was kind of starting to really pay, pay attention to the science of it. And yeah. I'm not usually, you know, I'm a late for everything, uh, you know, as far as like cutting edge ideas, but even beyond that in early February, I was talking to a friend and saying, I wonder if we should fly out of here, Yeah, you know, because I had heard about what was going on in China and, uh, it just made sense to me that it was going to happen in New York, uh, yeah. on some level. And, and this isn't a great place to be. So I've been quarantining. Now, as far as like people, um, you know, and how they're reacting, I don't see anybody panicking. Uh, everyone's shell-shocked, I would say, um, for the most part. But uh, since New York's such a big city full of total compromise constantly, whether you're on the subway or you go to the post office or you even go to Trader Joe's, you know, it's uh, pre-coronavirus, the line may start where the door opens, Yeah. for example. Um, so people are uh, really maintaining, uh, you know, the social distancing guidelines. Everyone's wearing a mask. Uh, people you know, fall into line here pretty, pretty well. Uh, there's no sh real shortages that I know of. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I wanted to get my favorite cleaner that has a little bleach in it and that was out. And, uh, there was, you know, there's certain items you're like, huh, like yesterday there was no iceberg lettuce, for example. <laughs> yeah. Lettuce is a hot commodity all of a sudden. Yeah. And so, but generally it's good here. Uh, but it is, um, getting closer and closer, like I'm knowing more people who've had it or had it or, uh, you know, I have uh, acquaintances that someone died, they know, and all in New York. So, and they say the next two weeks are really going to be rough. So hopefully not. Um, yeah, I was out, uh, I was out on tour I was doing a run with the Wood Brothers out on the west coast of the states, and we left around that date, like the fourth. And it was um, we were sort of like, kind of casually aware and almost joking about the whole thing. And then as the tour progressed, it just like got more and more uncomfortable, and the crowds were pretty big, and and I was I was getting nervous. And then at the at the end of it, it was around the twelfth, and the rest of the tour got canceled. At that point, we were supposed to play in Kirkland, Washington, which is that town where all those people died right at the beginning and, and man, it was, it was feeling weird. Yeah. Basically you put on the brakes about a, 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 about eight or nine days, 10 days after I, I started quarantining. You're a very wise man. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that <laughs> far, but, um, I mean, you know, I, 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 that said, I don't want to undermine you being impressed with me at all, but um, <laughs> I had read that masks were pointless and all this stuff. And I had, uh, I had been in the queue for this super duper mask and I canceled it. 
And now, uh, you know, I, my buddy who brought, who brought my groceries home gave me one of his masks and it's not a super duper, but it's just a paper one. Cause I had been wearing like basically an ascot around my face yeah. and it was real pain, man. My glasses were fogging up if I needed them and was slipping off. So, you know, I wish I was a little more Johnny on the spot with the mask situation, even though a lot of the, uh, uh, advice was it doesn't matter, but it does matter. And it might, if again, if we're carriers, uh, yeah, it's going to help, help protect someone else. It may not keep, you know, the, the, the microbes may get in paper, but that said, it's a real good public service. And as I said, a couple of minutes ago, everyone around here is wearing a mask. I rarely see someone without one. I mean, I really hate being here because, um, I mean, I live in a four-unit building, so if I just leave my apartment, you get into the microbe zone. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So if I go check my mail, um, I touch uh, two doors, you know, uh, get the mail, which might be infected, come back, leave my shoes in the hall, wash my hands, you know, it, 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 even just to leave literally my front door. Yeah. And I know I have friends uh, back in California and they have backyards or some people are upstate. And I do have to say, I mean, envy isn't maybe the right word, but it sure sounds good. And I'm getting real pale, my friend. Um, (laughs) In the mornings, what I do is that I leave at 5.30 a.m. and I walk across the Williamsburg Bridge into Manhattan and back. And, you know, there's hardly anyone. I mean, sometimes it's a little weird because the people out are still up from the night before. Right. You know, Um, and, you know, there is the feeling of being the last man on earth, you know, (laughs) Uh, because it's it's shut down and all the storefronts are closed. But that said, it's about an hour and a half walk and it's helping kind of you know, beat Satan out of me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing the same thing actually. I'm, I'm taking a walk every day almost. And, uh, that's something I didn't normally do. And I actually find it to be very helpful. So maybe I'll continue doing that after all this shit has subsided. I'm trying to build new routines because without routines, I, I'm really a fish out of water. Like I like routine. Mm-hmm. I mean, not complete boredom or anything, but just, you know, uh, I'm a human. I think I need to be productive somewhere in my DNA, you know? So yeah. it's part of a, of a routine I'm trying to build upon. I mean, I, it's, it's, it, I feel insatiable when it comes to talking about this. Uh, and I know many of my friends call me up and which is part of like, what's good in my life right now. Like, yeah. you know, friends are reaching out and we're talking on the phone, just like me and you are doing right now. And uh, but I hope your listeners aren't tired of it, you know, and it just feels good or informative or they could relate to it. Yeah, I've, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get people to talk about it and actually encouraging listeners to call in and tell me about their perspective on it, too, just because the, the musician community doesn't get a lot of attention, you know, unless some famous person gets the virus, we, we don't really get 
talked about. So I was hoping to, yeah, hear from some people and and from you, like about you know what what was going on and and how it was affecting your routine. So there you go. Well, yeah, there's there's the professional side of things. I mean, we've talked about the personal side of things, and yeah, you know, um, uh, none of it matters if my mother gets sick or if I get sick or the people I love or my friends or anyone, people in Nashville, none of it really matters. Like money is a number, you know, and health is something very real that we need. But that said, yeah, professionally, uh, so far so good. Um, I, you know, I have many, uh, I did, when I did this clinic in Berkeley, uh, I made sure that I told the young uh, people there that look young to me, you know, they're like 19, 20. <laughs> it's um, young. It's young. I didn't think so when I was 19 or 20, though. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Not at all. I thought I knew everything. Um, that said, um, I tried to make a point out of being a musician now as doing a lot of things. Uh, and I made a little list of what I did, uh, and a lot of them were, you know, uh, m most things on the list weren't musical. Um, and I, I don't think I said this, but one has to wonder if uh, Thelonious Monk could have survived in today's musical climate. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I love Thelonious Monk, but you, you, just as an example, like a guy who's like all about, you know, playing. Right. So, you know, I have uh, downloadable lessons. I have a Patreon. Um, I've been writing, uh, I, I write a column for Guitar Player Magazine, blah, 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 blah. I could keep going on, and I'm not saying this to impress anybody, but a lot of it doesn't matter. It, I could be in Timbuktu with an internet connection and a guitar, I guess I would need, um, and I could at least, you know, squeak by. Right. I'm not a musician who, uh, for, you know, just to put it succinctly, is like waiting for the phone to ring for a gig. Yeah. Um, so I'm okay there. And in some ways, things have spiked. Um, you know, uh, I a lot of Skype lessons, you know, uh -huh. even though it's on Zoom, Zoom lessons. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And in the back of my mind, you know, the last two years I've been really uh, concentrating on that aspect of my career, uh, you know, that's independent of geography. One thing I have noticed is that for so long in, in your career, and I want to go back and talk about other things, but now that you bring this up, like you were like a weekly New York guy. Like I know you moved from California and and you, but you've had these stints at, um, you know, particularly two places, I guess, the Rockwood and the, um, what was the place before that? Um, oh, the living room, right? Rockwood and the living room. That's right. And I'm, uh, I played once a week in New York for 18 years. <laughs> it's amazing. So let's talk about that for a second. So first of all, like, was that a conscious decision for you as like a musical decision as a way to function and to work and to survive? Or was it just like something that you fell into, like a pattern that that just sort of worked for you? I'm just wondering, like, you know, that weekly thing, it 
it really seems to have suited you in a lot of ways. And I'm just wondering if it was conscious or, or if it just happened. No, it was conscious. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I pursue things I can control. Um, I mean, I pursue, uh, for example, uh, I've pursued at least twice in my life to get some kind of tour going on in Japan. Uh, yeah. I love playing there. I've played there twice. I have like somewhat of a fan base there. Uh, but, um, you know, at some point, despite people with their hearts in the right place and me being in magazines there and all that, it just didn't materialize. Mm -hmm. um, so what could materialize <clears throat> is me playing once a week in a residency. Um, and so I pursued that and it, it, it ended up being a really long time. I mean, uh, it started as the knitting factory in 2002, technically mm -hmm. for one month. And we did really well, so we continued it. And I really like that it motivated me to write. It motivated me to be ready, um, you know, to, to perform. Uh, it also would make the band really good without rehearsing. Uh, right. And playing uh, organically. Before that even, um, I became more about, you know, I, uh, back in the day and we're going back, I had a four track machine and I'd, you know, program the drums and play bass and, yeah. and I'd give that to the band. And, uh, you know, I left that a long time ago. I mean, I, now I, I'm lucky enough to be able to play with people who make either decisions I agree with or decisions I would have never thought of. And right. playing once a week, if not more, because we had other gigs other than our residency, that can really develop. And uh, that was another reason why I really liked playing once a week uh, in New York City. Yeah, I get that. So if you don't rehearse with the guys and you're constantly writing and, and I, I'm assuming arranging tunes because you also do other people's songs. But how would you say with an original tune, how would you bring it to the band? Do you just sort of throw it to them at a sound check or do you just like dive in and say, hey, this here's a new one in E minor? Uh, no, I mean, it's it's almost that. Um, uh, unless it was the group Honeyfingers. Okay, yeah, which requires more arrangement. Yeah, that thing, yeah. that was totally different. And believe me, I loved every minute of it. I love yeah. rehearsing and working on ideas and going, hey, I have a harmony idea. Hey, let's try it, you know. Yeah. And with people who you tend to agree with, you know, like who hear things like everyone goes, yeah, no, you know, or that's it, you know, and you move on and rehearsals are really quick that way and productive. But to answer your question, um, with my trio, what I do is um, I usually record it on my iPhone, like I'll do yeah. a rhythm track on the boomerang or something, uh, very lo-fi, and uh, maybe play the melody above it. And I write a chord chart. You know, basically, I mean, it says GCD or whatever, G D7. Um, scan that, send an MP3 and go, hey, I'd like to try this on Monday. And quite honestly, I'd say like 60% of the time, the first time, 
it, it's like, you know, taking a lamb to slaughter, <laughs> you know, because usually and, and I'll play something the worst I'll ever play. It's the first time I play it in public. Uh-huh. Um, you know, no matter how much I practice, I don't know why. Um, and sometimes it's the group or, or they'll do a feel that I didn't anticipate. Right. Oh, that must happen. Because uh, I'll do something maybe corny and traditional, uh, you know, corny for lack of a better word or an oompa, like a Chet Atkins rhythm. And then they'll do something that I didn't expect. And generally it's better. Um, so the first time, if not the first couple times, you know, it doesn't reach its potential, but at the gig, <laughs> I mean, I've been, I usually plan it and we'll do something that I know, you know, we can play well, you know, you could kick us out of bed at 4am and we, could, <laughs> you know, instantly play the song well, and it might be a crowd pleaser, like a tune, like monkey in a movie, for example, or something like that. And then I'll call new song that was sent via email. And I actually will tell the audience that it's the first or second time we're playing it. And uh, you give a little disclaimer. Yeah. Oh, total disclaimers. Um, (laughs) But it kind of gets them on our side. And I think they enjoy the process as we do. Yeah. And they're, they're a part of the process. Um, their energy and their reaction or what the, what the room feels like is a big tell. And sometimes it's um, the opposite of what I expected. Uh, for example, I wrote a tune called uh, <clears throat> Cole, C-O-A-L. And, yeah. uh, you know, I thought, ah, oh, this is one of those tunes. <coughs> Excuse me. This is one of those tunes that, um, is going to go into some, you know, audio file of songs I don't really play live. And, but uh, my bassist, Chris, God bless him, heard it and he loved it. And he, he really, you know, I'm really lucky to have a band that cares. And they were, mm-hmm. and, and Chris would be like, hey, let's play Cole, let's play Cole. And we played it and I thought, oh boy, you know, this is really going to test the audience. And I always have an eye on the audience, maybe to a fault, but I do. And we played it, and it got a big hand. Okay. And and, uh, and I'm usually pretty on. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't live in an alternate reality for what the audience likes. Like, you know, we push the envelope quite a bit, but I'm, you know, think, oh, we could get away with this. But I was really dead wrong on that. We ended up uh, releasing it, and we it's on the uh, – new Sunday's the record best of Jim Campolongo and it's one of the unreleased tracks. There's that advantage too. Um, if I didn't play once a week or often, um, I don't know if that song would have ever seen the light of day or had a chance to develop. Interesting. So in that, in that period of time, 18 years, like, uh, I, and I, I know obviously it wasn't 18 years solid. Like it was a, just a general thing that you did, but your reputation skyrocketed during that time uh were you turning work down like touring road work and that kind of thing did that come up a lot and and you just said no to it so you could stay and develop this way not really um i'm very proud to be like a uh you know in a a a spot in new york 
uh, guitar aficionados would make sure they were there on a Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a real honor because, I mean, I would say that about Red Volkert. You know, like right. if I went to Austin, um, you know, I'd want to be there when Red Volkert played. And to, and, and, and to think that, you know, I was in that stature really meant a lot. Or Les Paul, you know, was yeah. on Mondays. And I was kind of that. Or Mike Stern plays at the 55 bar on Tuesdays. And uh, so that was really nice. Um, but honestly, like I think I don't I, I can't tell because I'm inside my career. But to me, the biggest things that happened to me in my career were probably the 10 gallon cats first couple records. But mm-hmm. then uh, the little willies. And ironically, the Fender Princeton video I did, um, I did this uh, video back when I was coloring my hair. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, to this day, people come to a gig and they'll tell me, yeah, you know, I saw that Fender Princeton video and it turned me on to you. Because a lot of times I'll ask people how they heard of me. Yeah. um, Too, because I'm curious. And for sure, those are the things that might get people to my weekly residency. You know, I, I mean, certainly somebody might wander in or be there for the band before us because there's multiple bands in New York where we are usually the last one. Um, mm-hmm. And they discover us without uh, the, any intention of doing so. Uh, or or uh, ulterior motive, like, oh, I'm going to see this this guitar trio after my buddy's band. So, uh, you know, it, I'm not sure. It sure made me, it makes me known in New York, which is great. As far as turning down tours, I mean, if, if uh, Nick Cage asked me to play guitar or somebody like that, I mean, I would, you know, I would do it. Or if I can't think of anybody, you know, but somebody like that, so, you know, and just take some time off the weekly gig. I did take some time off. This is going back maybe 2009. I toured with Martha Wainwright for a year. And a couple of times the Willies have done little short tours. But it's it was never a problem. And I wouldn't have prioritized the uh, residency unless it was booked, of course. Mm-hmm. But we, we would only book a month or two in advance. And usually tours don't come up. Uh, like, hey, can you uh, tour the world next week? You know, right. I, I've never gotten that call. I don't know. Maybe somebody has. So <laughs> That's how Bob Dylan does it, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> one thing that, I, that I've noticed about you as a musician, and, and one thing I, I, I really dig about your recorded output over the years, is that you can hear your playing change and your approach change and your ideas progress. Do you feel like you've kept learning as a musician? And I, I guess that sort of ties back into this weekly thing is like, um, you know, you haven't been static. You've continued to change and progress. I hear a real difference, like both in your touch and your tone and approach from, say, 10 years ago than I do in your most recent stuff. You know, what does progressing musically look like for you now? Like, do you do you practice a lot? Are you striving? Are you learning stuff? Or do you just like, is your weekly thing your focus? Well, um, thanks a lot, Steve. That's, that's really flattering. And thanks for listening. Uh, no, I work really, I, I work pretty hard. Um, as everyone I know does, um, I practice every day. Um, I usually, and I'm very goal oriented. 
you know, uh, right now, um, I've been, because I feel a little preoccupied to be truly creative in this era we're in, I've been running through, uh, these hellish exercises and (laughs) for, for about three weeks. And I generally don't do that kind of thing, but I chose it because it's just making my ears bleed. It's, it's so difficult for me, these exercises. And, um, it's the best thing I could do currently, uh, because I said there's a certain preoccupation I'm feeling, uh, I think, which is understandable. And a bit sometimes uh, one is a little emotionally fatigued during this time and everything's changing. So but I practice uh, and try to learn. Uh, and it's funny, a few months ago, I had a solo guitar gig. And uh, I was really nervous about it. So I, I sometimes claim I'm the worst solo guitarist in the world, but <laughs> it's my secret ambition to be a good solo guitarist. And and I, by the way, I I, I am a really good guitar uh, solo guitarist, but only in the privacy of my own home when no one is listening. <laughs> um, but that said, to pra- I, I was wor- I worked through a bunch of tunes on this this solo gig. And I came to realize that I don't play like in the truest sense of the word. And I had to kind of go, oh, I should expand on this and play this and and try this and maybe stumble, but keep going. Just uh-huh. keep going. Don't go, oh, okay, what is the uh the chord baseline, you know, baseline with chords for this. Let me work this out. And it was really freeing. And, and it, it took me a while to segue into that. Um, okay. So one could say, like, I don't want to say to a fault, but I'm very uh, goal oriented. Um, okay, I'm going to learn uh, this piece, this Chet Atkins thing, note for note. You know, isn't I'm going to play Misty for 10 minutes. Right. You know, uh, so, uh, yes, and I do practice. And and it's funny, I've been saying this lately for the last couple of years. It's always my one of my first questions um, to either my peers or to people who I respect what do you practice? What are you practicing now? How do you practice? I, 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 I always wish that Guitar Magazines uh, would ask that. I mean, I wonder totally, like, how, what does Jeff Beck do? Or what does Steve Fye <laughs> do? Or, or what does, you know, uh, my friend Steve Cardenas do? And it's always a fascinating answer i mean even like do you practice at 10 a.m or do you practice at 11 p.m when your wife goes to bed yeah you know uh, and everybody has structure um i mean i wouldn't ask steven seagal (laughs) you know but but people who have some depth in their playing or even if not, you know, um, yeah. I think it's really a good question. And uh, to, to kind of expand, I mean, I try to play at 10 a.m. if I can, if I'm not working or Skype lessons. 
Um, that's the time I start practicing and I try to do two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't count like, uh, you know, playing guitar while I'm watching TV, which I get a lot done doing that actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I try and sit down and, and do calculus mm-hmm. for, for at least an hour a day, every day. Yeah. So, so sort of late morning is your, is your time to get that done. I'm a total morning person, Steve. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, and as the day goes on, you know, sometimes I do, you don't know what's going to happen or, um, you know, the day kind of can beat me up sometimes. I hope I'm not uh, getting this wrong, but I asked Duke Levine because I think he's an amazing guitarist and he practices at night, like late. Uh-huh. And I, I get that. I used to do it when I first, first started, but now, I mean, sometimes I, this morning I was practicing at 6am Wow! and it felt really Really not. Well, I get up early, uh-huh. you know. You mentioned that you're doing like a lot of grueling exercises right now because you're not feeling super creative. And I actually can relate to that too because I also feel kind of anxious right these days and I don't feel super creative. And I'm doing like funny guitar-y, like some scales and finger stuff and picking stuff that I've never practiced because I just haven't had time or whatever. It's driving my wife bananas. But, uh, <laughs> but t- tell me about some of these, like are these exercises you've developed for yourself or are you like picking them out of some book somewhere or what are you doing? Well, I, I probably built them up too much. You know, it's the G scale. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> uh, it's partially inspired by me asking Luca what he was practicing. Uh-huh. And this was a couple weeks ago because I was having trouble being creative. And, uh, and I wondered what he was doing and he, and it made me feel better. And I know he just wasn't saying it. He, he felt the same thing. And it was based on this instructional video that Adam Rogers, a New York guitarist put out and he does, um, arpeggios of melodic minor, um, major, of course, harmonic minor, harmonic major, and Dorian. Um, and he does them, uh, you know, he ascends, and when you get to the highest note of the seven chord, you go uh, down a half step and descend a half step lower. Okay. Go down, go up, and when you yeah. reach that high point, you go down. So I did that, and I was, and it really stopped um, my fingers from being autopilot. And while I did it, I was trying to think what chord I was arpeggiating. Um, after I did it a while, I thought the the all the uh, the the arpeggio exercises started from the fifth string, and so I decided that I should do the sixth string. You know, where they start on the sixth string. You know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, uh, and so I, I wrote them out, and it, I, I came up with like two or three different versions of harmonic minor, melodic minor, and harmonic major um, because they're just uncomfortable no matter what. And at one point I thought I was finished, and uh, – I sent them to Luca and I was kind of like apologizing, you know, I said, Hey, look, if you get a second to look at this, that's great. If not, don't worry about it. You know? And, and he did. And he said, yeah, that's really good. But 
I forgot how he put it, and I don't want to undersell him, but he said, I'm not very good at the way you wrote him out. And I, I looked at it and I was thought, I'm not either. <laughs> um, because if I go down in pitch, I prefer going down towards the headstock. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know exactly what I mean. Uh, uh-huh. And I had a lot, sometimes it's inevitable. Sure, you got to like stretch uh, a major third to go down in pitch. Yeah. And I realized, you know, I could do these, they look good in paper, but I'm really not going to apply this. I know me. And I just don't like doing it. And it's one of the things, I mean, Alan Holdsworth would have had no problem. <laughs> right? I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? But so I ended up rewriting them. And even like this, I hope it's not boring. It's taken me like six minutes to tell you what, you know, I'm practicing. I mean, it took me hours to come up with these fingerings, but I kind of like doing that. Like I'm really into fingering. Sure. And so now what I'm doing is all those, you know, Dorian, harmonic major, harmonic minor, major, melodic minor, uh, in arpeggios, root six, root five, I run the scale and then I do them in the scale in thirds. Have you put that up for sale on your website? No, um, I, I, I kind of, uh, in part, I, mu- I might put it on Patreon, uh-huh. but I have a, a lesson called um, Formatting Your Practice Schedule and uh, Formatting Your Practice or something. I forgot what it's called. And it's been a really popular lesson. And I'm thinking of either, either adding this to it mm-hmm. or, or just divvying this out on Patreon because, and at this point, I'm not so sure like this is valid, but I'm really sensitive about um, selling something that Adam Rogers inspired from right. instructional video. Now, it isn't. Uh, give him a buck. It is. A, yeah, I'll give him a buck. It's, uh, I'll send him one of my CDs. Uh, it, you know, it isn't. It isn't plagiarism by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm really sensitive about this, as I should be, and we all should yeah. be. So I'm not sure because uh, I definitely. I mean, even though Adam rips through these things on his little video who I'm sure your listeners will, there's like a little teaser on YouTube you could see. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of think I brought it a step further (laughs) um, because I did root six and I have the fingerings. I I don't know if his, I just saw the teaser. Um, I don't know if he has the fingerings written down. Maybe he does. I'd be curious what they were. I mean, that's really something. Another thing that fascinates me is how other guitarists finger things. Sure. It is fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. And even though we really have to get into it at some point, or we will, and I don't want to alienate uh, anyone, but, you know, a lot of times people ask the wrong question, I think. And, 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 and certainly at the end of a gig, you know, when somebody asks me, what year is my guitar? Um, or, wow, your amp sounds great. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's like the nicest thing they could say. Um, 
but sometimes I do feel like if I meet someone, like the things I'm interested in are the things we're discussing. Right. Yeah. You know, how do you see a minor seven flat five chord? You know, the half diminished chord. There's there's a couple ways to look at it. You know, um, do you see it as a inverted minor chord or do you just see it as a, what it is or or not? Or do you play a major scale a half step above, which doesn't always work. But, you know, for example, like if I meet somebody who could answer those questions and thinks about those things like Steve Cardenas, like Luca Benedetti, like I mean, Adam Rogers probably wrote a book on um, those are the questions I find really interesting. That's not a that's not a typical post gig question. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> I mean, I kind of you, you wish it was. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a post gig. I shouldn't have given given that as an example. I'll take anything I could get other than you suck. You know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, that said. Uh, you know, so a lot of things. What if I if I get a, a take two on this? Like things are gear oriented, right? Of course. Uh, okay. Yeah. Like that's instead of talking for five minutes and not saying what I meant. You know, things are so gear oriented due to the magazines and all that stuff. And it's interesting stuff. Don't get me wrong. We all love it. You know. Um, but sometimes I wish the questions were a little less gear oriented. That reminds me of there's that Chet Atkins story where where he he's sitting around playing in his studio or something and somebody comes up and goes, Man, that guitar sounds amazing and he puts it down on the ground and goes, Oh yeah, how's it sound now? <laughs> you know, I've heard that story with Danny Gatton. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and that makes more sense than Chet to me, but <laughs> Chet just seems like so Christ like to me. <laughs> you know, like he's so nice and, and gracious. I mean, everything about his music is about being generous. I mean true. I know if you went if you had went over Chet Atkins for dinner, it would have been really, really nice. Yeah. I get that pe- I get that feeling. Want to get some pizza? Uh, got you know, Campolingo. You know he he would have <laughs> he would have uh, it would have been nice. And I, I get a really good feeling about him. Uh, but anyway, maybe he did say it. You know, it, he's uh, there's also that story. Uh, somebody came up to him and said, "Wow, you're really good, but you're no Chet Atkins." <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your your the inspiration you draw from. Chet, like I'd like to hear about some of the other people as well, but, um, you know, obviously like Chet was a finger picker and you're a flat picker, but you do a lot of hybrid stuff. Was he somebody that you learned a lot of things from like in your early days? I don't know if you ever saw him or met him or anything, but was he a big inspiration for you musically? Totally. I mean, I never met him. I wish I I could have, uh, though I probably wouldn't have been able to speak. Um, I did see him once uh, live and it was great. And uh, yeah, I've, I mean, I still learn from Chet Atkins. Uh, you know, I have probably over a hundred Chet Atkins records. Um, uh, you know, his craftsmanship is so developed. Um, flawless. It's flawless. Like the ideas, the way he presents them, his endings are always like really charming and eventful. Like they're just this tidy bow on a beautiful. Yeah wrapped box. Um, 
you know, his licks are great and they're kind of uh, distilled. You know, there's a, uh, oh, it's like da 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 Can't remember the name of that song. He does this like little out lick on it. And it's this like amazing, you know, distilled out lick. It's not like if you were listening to uh, Desperado by Pat Martino or something, which is a wealth of riches too, but there's just so much text there. It's like a 600 page book. So his licks are always really good and really distilled. Um, the other thing I learned from him was, um, uh, I wish I could put this better, but no song is beneath me. You know, um, I, right. uh, when I, I, I didn't go to music college, but some of the guys, not, not to my band now, but some of the guys that I've met throughout the years, it'll be like, Hey, there's no way I'm playing girl from Ipanema or no satin doll or something, or all the things you are. They just say, I'm not playing that. I uh-huh. stick of that song. And, and I kind of get that. But, you know, like Chet, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to make my point, but there's no song I won't say I won't play. Um, right. And in part due to Chet. I mean, you'll even look at his record sometimes. You're like, geez, he's doing Mrs. Robinson, huh? And kicking and kicking its ass. It's kicking its ass and like bringing like little twists in the harmony and and nailing the melody. Um you know, there's, super strong. Yeah. I wish I could think of some of the cornier ones because sometimes it's it's pretty corny. You know, I'll think, "Geez, you're doing that one." You know, I mean, even like yakety sax, yakety sax. Yep. You know, I mean, that's pretty corny, and 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 yet, like, I love it. Uh, I love his sure. version and the version he does with Mark Knopfler. There, yep. whatever he does, it sounds good. Do you have a favorite era of his? Like, was the were were the early like the the late forties, early fifties? Were those important for you when you were a kid growing up, or did you not really get into him until later? No, I think I got into him when I was about twenty, twenty years okay. old. Um, and I got a cassette, and I can't remember how I got the cassette. Darn it! And I, I had the feeling like I loved this, but. I kind of shouldn't at the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was into the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Hendrix and Deep Purple, you know, Django Reinhardt. Um, you know, it wasn't all, you know, suburban rock. You know, an Italian kid in South San Francisco, you know, in, in, in middle-class suburbs. Uh, you know, Chet wasn't the thing you heard through, uh, you know, car speakers. So I ended up just kind of falling in love with it. And I mean, I like almost everything he does. Um, Some of the DX7 sounds. uh, (laughs) It gets a little much, yeah. A little much, you know. I mean, I think there's some of that on that Mark Knopfler, uh, Chet Atkins record, uh, Neck and Neck, I think it's called. Sure, it is, yeah. And man, no problem. You know, no problem. I'll, I, I will embrace that DX7 on that record. I think it's some of the, maybe a little later, I'm kind of like a little lukewarm about in the context of Chet, but he really kept growing. I mean, that's yeah, the amazing did. thing about him is he, he just got better. Uh, there's that record where he tunes his bass strings down. I think it's called Solo Flight. That's, oh, I don't know that one. It's really good. 
and you know uh, his his uh, collaborations were always good. But I, I always kind of preferred. I mean, even though the the Lenny Bro record's great, the uh, yep. Jerry Reed to two Jerry Reeds are good. I always kind of prefer just Chet doing his own thing. You know, Chet at home. Um, there's another one I really love it, and I can't think of the name. I, I mean, w- the one that really turned me around was a session with Chet Atkins, and I think he has Homer and Je- Jethro in that okay. group. That's a great record too, and, and it's where you know Chet's playing, and every hair is really in place. And I kind of like ten years later, it was a little less. It, his hair was a tiny bit messier. <laughs> <laughs> 
what what I feel a lot of gratification from. So it would have been hard for me to go to a thumb pick, but uh-huh. uh, you know, after after uh, one day of research, <laughs> <laughs> you went deep in that day. Yeah, yeah oh, that was a deep day. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about your writing process? Uh, you know, I find a lot of the songs or a lot of the pieces that that you write are so um guitaristic obviously like there's a lot of like really idiosyncratic bends and things that stylistically are so Jim Campolongo-y uh I don't know like if you were a clarinet player would you write music differently than you are now like how, how integral is actually the guitar performance part of what you're doing part of your writing process well that's a really good question um I mean if I learned a clarinet tune I would try to employ whatever the strengths of the guitar uh, allowed. And if I learn, um, you know, a song, a a jazz standard, I might be more attracted to playing a two or three note cluster chord than a uh, Joe Pass chord grip. Mm -hmm. So whatever I play, um, I try to exploit what the guitar will allow me to do because meanwhile you know uh, as guitarists you know we're I'm dealing with stretching my fourth finger up a major third to go down in pitch and whatever things are difficult about the guitar that we really can't play a full uh, 11th chord easily or things like that there's a lot of drawbacks I mean you know, I don't think the guitar was invented to be this big chromatic instrument. It's it's really 3D chess, you know, uh, and it's part of what's beautiful and it's part of why one day you could think, hey, I, I, I'm pretty good. I'm getting this thing. And the next day you could not think Quit. that. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. or just feel mediocre. I never think like, oh, I suck. I mean, whatever the voices in my head that are trying to undermine me might be more clever than that. I don't know. But or maybe it's a accurate, uh, you know, assessment. But I'll, I might feel mediocre or, geez, I should remember this. So when I play anything on the guitar, I try and exploit those those aspects of it that are pleasing. Harmonics, open strings, cluster chords, uh, the telly sound, what, whether what position you're in, even though I love my Gibson 225 and the Duosonic, et cetera. Um, so I think that they just come out that way, mostly. Um, I think there's many songs I think I've written that could be played on sax and they'd still be a good song. Uh, but when exploiting the strengths of the guitar, I'm basically trying to keep it interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said earlier, I do have one eye on the audience and I also want to please myself. So if I can uh, play a melody bending from behind the nut, yeah. um, unless it's too much of an effect that's inappropriate, that is more, and it's going to sound like, look at me. Yeah. Um, and undermine the uh, the song itself. I'll do that, and uh, so 
you know, it, it's just, it keeps it interesting for me. It takes advantage of the strengths of the guitar. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. I forget who I was listening to. Oh, it was, uh, as usual, it was Ben Webster playing uh, Nancy with the Laughing Face. And I was uh, trying to copy his uh, solo and his the way he played the melody, which was really marvelous. But I thought, you know, if I was really going to um, achieve what he's achieving, I would really need to plug in a distortion unit. Mm-hmm. Because the saxophone almost sounds like a distorted guitar. Interesting. And 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 Ben could play. I mean, even though he was a genius, and he is someone I go to if I want to like understand how one could maybe play a song. I'll listen to Ben Webster. You know, it's it's you know, ba da 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 da. You know, and on guitar. Um, it's good, uh, but on saxophone, it sound you know it's almost like a Hendrix sound or something. Yeah. So yeah, you know, there's that aspect too, where uh, though I just plug into the amp generally, sometimes I do miss whole notes and stuff like that. What's your actual process like when you're writing some of these instrumental tunes? Do you come up with a progression? first and and put that onto your boomerang and just play around with it or do you have a melody in mind and then and then develop the the harmony underneath it with the chord structure or how do you approach it um usually i think the chords would some kind of chord thing would come first and and i sing a lot uh i sing the melody um that the chords might inspire okay and i tape myself singing it then i learn what i was singing um, okay. Because, I mean, it's almost certain that what I'm singing might not be a comfortable guitar move. Right. You know, like even when you're in A and you're playing um, some majory thing, playing the B, again, we're getting into this thing that I keep referring to. You know, do you reach back with your first finger and go out of fifth position into fourth position and play B with your first finger, or do you play B with your fourth finger on the seven fret four string? Um, uh-huh. Now, certainly, I play B, the note B, when I'm playing a major scale in A, or maybe you do it in second position and you got no problem, but then you can't play C sharp on the ninth fret first string, you know, not mm-hmm. easily. So, mm-hmm. That's an example of like something that just rolls off the tongue uh, if you're singing. Um, right. And I don't mean that B specifically, but it illustrates some of the things that are so easy to sing and yet a little bit out of possibly the guitar's comfort zone. So I take myself singing and I usually learn what that is. A real good case in point is a song called uh, The Past is Looking Brighter and Brighter. Mm -hmm. It's it's off Dream Dictionary. And I usually try to write a song fairly quickly, you know, uh, because if I work on it too much, it's either I kill it or it wasn't that happening to begin with, maybe. Um, And I was working on that song and I was coming up with all these things and, you know, it just seemed like everything kind of sounded good. 
And I, that's when you know you're in trouble, you know, I mean, when everything sounds kind of good, you know, it, I, I'm better off when I think everything sounds bad and it's obvious. Right. But and I thought, you know, I'm just going to sing what I feel. And mm-hmm. it, it's like nothing, you know, it was do 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 you know, more or less. And and I thought. I played it, I listened to it, and I thought, that's it. And it kind of sounded, and, and I'm really flattering myself uh, here, and I shouldn't, because it's, but it, it, it sounded like a Maria Callas aria to me. Wow. Like, that's what cool. I was thinking of. Yeah. And before that, I was, you know, thinking too much. And, mm-hmm. and I just sang this. It's not. It's not even a nursery rhyme. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's 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 so simple. It isn't even uh, uh, evolved enough. Um, but it's it's the song and it's the truth. And I know that's a real intangible. And I don't want to get all arty farty. But when I'm writing a song, I have like two extreme goals. One is: is this the truth? Is this the truth? I, I, I want to be able to say something else, but that's the best way I can put it. And I get it. The other goal I have is to finish it. A lot, I mean, I, this is a long story, and I said it at the Berkeley uh, Clinic. I don't want to have people hearing me say the same thing twice, but. That's all right. Okay, I met this guy, a great songwriter in the 80s uh, named Steve Yerke. And uh, he was like a Bay Area legend. I think he's still writing. And if he is, my apologies for not being up on what he's doing. But, man, that guy was a real songwriter and, and a lyricist. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough that he wanted me to play guitar with him. And he got to – he came over my house. He wanted me to, like, learn, like, his most recent 12 songs he had written that were all great. And I said, hey, Steve, you know, at the end of the rehearsal, I kind of waited. I said – Hey, Steve, I go, I got this half a song. Maybe you could help me finish it. And he looked at me and he said, everybody has a half a song. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's what he said. That's how I remember it. He was super nice. But and it really kind of pissed me off, you know. Um, And uh, but I thought about it and I thought he's right. And so I think I can't remember what the song was, but I was, you know, I was kind of mad and I finished it mm-hmm. and I don't even remember what it was, but part of writing a song is finishing the song. Yeah. And sometimes I'll even pretend that somebody's paying me like 200 bucks to write a jingle, <laughs> you know, or something like whatever, 200 bucks, 2000 bucks, whatever. Um, and I'll finish it, and sure, did I go to the six minor chord, and that's typical, and then I did this, and that's like a cliche, maybe, but I finished it, and a lot of times that song, I'll bring it to the band, and like I said, they'll reinterpret the rhythm and mm-hmm. the groove, and it, it becomes a really good song. It takes on a life of its own. It takes on a life of its own and you finished it. So it, it was allowed that chance. 
That's a really good piece of advice for people. I think is is that that finishing thing is something that that gets overlooked. I think because uh, you know I, I I think a lot of people struggle with that. I think that happens a lot. It's a struggle in many many ways. Like you know you've got to face yourself. You've got to face that this is it. Um, and I think like this whole you know Bob Dylan was in the Chelsea Hotel for six days writing "Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands" for you. Um, you know, like if I'm writing a song for six days, it isn't that good. <laughs> I yeah. mean, not for a guy who listens to Chet Atkins, right? Right. Or you know, Howlin' Wolf. Yeah. I mean, I listen to some highbrow stuff as well. Um, That's I, true, though. Like you, you know, Wolf wasn't sitting there s- struggling over <laughs> over smokestack lightning for for nine months. Torrega might have, Soar might have, Mom Pow might have, um, but even if I'm trying to write like my version of a Fernando Soar piece, like again, there's the high aspiration of is this the truth, mm-hmm. and then the other aspiration is finish it. Right, right. So I love what you said about about um, singing the melodies because that to me means a, a lot. That that you are thinking about it as a as as a vocalist in a way, and and also that that vocal phrasing and breathing comes into your writing process as a guitar player. Well, totally. And uh, you know, it, 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 a lot of times I write a song that I really like, and I don't want to solo over it. I don't like soloing over it. It's not about soloing over it. Um, and the guitar music I like generally has that. I mean, uh, I don't really, uh, you know, I don't. I mean, I guess that's not true. I was going to say I don't really listen to guitar records, but I do uh, tons. Um, but like, <laughs> like, but Jeff Beck to me, like, is a, a lyrical guitarist in the instrumental context. Right. But by the same token, I mean, not all his work, but I mentioned Alan Holdsworth. So is Alan Holdsworth. I yeah. like, I like Bill Connors. I like Johnny Smith. Um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say Wes Montgomery falls in that group. Wes Montgomery is like a true jazz genius, um, mm-hmm. but he doesn't play lyrically like a vocalist. And right. the car records, I mean, at least I make, you know, that's kind of the vibe. Can, can you tell me a, a bit about who some of your favorite guitar players are? Uh, um, I, I know you've talked about Jimmy Rivers before and, and got a chance to meet and hang with him, right? Was that, uh, was that a cool experience? Oh, it was life-changing. Really? Um, yeah. Um, it was in my late 20s and early 30s, um, I decided to get real serious, <laughs> even though, you know, Hendrix was, I think he died when he was 28. You know, at the time I felt, uh, like everything was behind me. Like we said, when you're 20, you feel really old, but I decided to get really serious. And, um, one of the things that I discovered was uh, Jimmy rivers and I loved the way he played. I learned his solos, uh, a lot of them note for note. And I felt that I got to know him. And I, I bet you, have you had that experience when you really, 
study a guitarist who's just sounds on a record or sounds on your computer, you feel like you get to kind of know them. Like we were talking yeah. about Chet. Um, I'm going to turn it around real quickly. Like, can you think of any guitarists that you felt that way with? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, somebody like Ry Cooter for me, um, uh, maybe even like Mississippi John Hurt was a big one for me where I got like so inside, like I knew every song of his, you know, he didn't have that huge of a recorded output. Um, you know, yeah, excuse things like for, that. But excuse me for interrupting, but what kind of person do you think Ry Cooter is by learning? Like that's kind of what I'm saying. I felt that after learning certain solos like Jimmy Bryant, Jimmy Rivers off the top, Chet Atkins, I felt like I knew who they were personally. Did you feel that way about Ry Cooter? I guess I did, although I didn't really think about it that way. And then I actually met him and it wasn't at all like I was, I had pictured it in my mind. So, and it was kind of disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I mean, well, in my case, Jimmy was exactly the person who I thought he'd be. Amazing. And uh, yeah, and he was, um, uh, you know, after this, uh, I was just studying his stuff for a couple of years. Me and a buddy, John Dilks, drove up to Placerville, which was a couple hours away, and went to go see him play. And he was 70, I think. Uh-huh. And he played just the same. And, you know, he was like the guy I expected to meet. Like, he was really sweet, super talented, funny. Um, he did a lot of things. I mean, I'm not saying I anticipated all this now. I'm just describing him. He um, converted Volkswagens into uh, like motorcycles, like with three wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he did like he was a painter. He built his house. Wow. You know, he he went fishing. I felt like such a nerd compared to him. Was he just sort of like a like a local small time guitarist at this point in his career? Or was he still like a recording artist? No, he was just he had a, a Sunday gig at a restaurant. Wow. And like there were fanatics like myself all over the place, certainly in L.A. and Big Sandy and those guys. Um, There was a lot of people that everyone I knew was really into Jimmy Rivers. You know, I knew it was at a time where you generally hung around like like minded people. Right. You know, Um, that said. uh, So and he was a little uh, bashful about. Um, uh, the way he was perceived. I remember asking him, there's a, a tune on the Brisbane bop record called Jimmy's Blues. And uh, I had learned it note for note. And I said, hey, Jimmy, I got to ask you a question. And it was totally in earnest. I said, was that a worked out solo? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he didn't know. I said, yeah, was it, did you work it out before? And he goes, oh, no, we were all drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot about jazz and swing from him at, at mm-hmm. a time when I, I, I really could use it. Did you actually take lessons from him or no? Yeah, I took I took like one or two lessons. They weren't, you know, it was like sitting in his living room um, and they're on cassette somewhere and I can't find them. I think they're at my mom's house. Um, mm-hmm. And if God is my witness, if I had them, they'd be on the Internet like an hour after this interview. 
Like, mm-hmm. um, but I've looked everywhere here. I mean, I have stuff kind of spread out between coasts, you know? Um, right. So, but yeah, I took a lesson with him and uh, he, for example, he, uh, he looked at E minor seven flat five. He called it little C seven. Wow. So he had, he, he had sort of his own little vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. He was not like, um, you know, Mr. Music Theory. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, the other thing that really helped me with him was, uh, you know, maybe like yourself and some of your listeners, like one of the first books I got was the real book. And, you know, I'd be struggling with uh, tritone substitutions, um, assuming this was like uh, a, a concrete part of the tune and uh, some, some you know, just stuff that didn't come naturally. And Jimmy was like, no, 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 just play seed A7. Oh, wow. You know, instead of like a bunch of passing chords and yeah. chromaticism. And boy, that really helped me. And, and it allowed me to do that. Like, because I had certain reverence basically out of uh, humility and stupidity that, you know, I thought, well, I, I have no right to uh, reharmonize this song and throw out half the chords. But uh, they were pop songs to him. Right. And, you know, he... He came of, from that era, right? He came from that era. And he so he'd kind of give me a befuddled look now and then, you know, going, oh, this is, you know, how I play the tune. Even... Um, on I've Got Rhythm Changes, which he'd rip over. Um, I bet. He, uh, I go, what are you thinking? You know, because I'd be thinking if we were in B flat, you know, B flat six, B diminished seven, C minor, you know, C sharp minor, uh, diminished, D minor, G seven, D, you know, and on and on and on, right? Yeah. And he, he, he looked at me, he goes, Oh, I just think B flat F seven. He just boiled it down to a, a couple of chords. It, it's it's uh, you know it, it, let's say it's B flat B diminished seven. I can't say it, but like that that quick. Yeah. He think one five one five one five. You know, I don't know if we're there yet. He might nail the uh, four minor. Wow. And I mean, it's really doable and instinctively he'd play other chord tones but it it got me in the ballpark of not being frustrated by these million chord changes i was trying to nail was he was he being um i don't know what the right word for is it like was he sort of like belittling his own knowledge or did he really just not think of it in any other way other than just simplifying it like that that was his genius was simplifying um, because in a lot of ways that is genius. Like genius is getting something very complex and simplifying it to its most simple equation. And uh, that's what he did. And he did it uh, instinctively and intuitively. So he, it was not self-effacing. It was literally how he thought. And again, um, it's it really does work, and then you know maybe you add a couple of chord tones here and there, but 
to get into the ballpark and get on the top three strings instead of starting scales on the lower strings, which was what I kind of was doing Mm -hmm. and badly. It really freed me up to play music. Interesting. Wow, that's so cool. And so, so you got to see him a bunch of times or was that a short period of time where you saw him and took a couple lessons? No, I mean, it was like a, a two-year period where oh, wow. we'd, we'd go down and, uh, you know, drive down to Placerville, go see him play. And what was really wonderful was uh, it ended up uh, turning into a Jimmy, River, Jimmy Rivers tribute show at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it was packed. Um, I think, I don't know, it's 800 people capacity, but I don't know if there was all 800, but it was packed. Yeah. And everyone was there cheering Jimmy. I have a photo of me and him playing. I'm looking like really intensely at his neck. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he wanted me, I was really honored to play the heads. Right. And some really hard. He, he does this one tune off Brisbane Bop's Slow Boat to China. Uh-huh. Man, check it out. It's okay. really good. Um, and uh, he wanted me to play the heads because he, he, I think he was getting arthritis or something, and he was like a little self-conscious that he couldn't do it. And so I'd have to go, you know, do I would shed it for two months, but it ended up, he played all the heads perfectly. They were just kind of in stereo, you know. I might add that. That's actually super cool, I bet. Oh, it was so cool. Like, you know, I was so lucky and it, it grew from like being alone in my apartment, obsessing on some guy's lick, wondering yeah. how he played it to like playing with him, you know, and being did you, an ally. Did you have other other guys at all like that in your life that were influential to you that you actually got to meet and hang with? Uh not like that, I don't think. I mean, I certainly met influential people, I mean, that aren't household names. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you call Jimmy a household name. Um, I mean, I've met some famous people. I'm trying to think. I mean, I met Roy Buchanan. I met Pete Townsend. Um, what was your meeting with Roy Buchanan? Well, um, <laughs> you know, it was pretty nondescript because it was the early 80s. He was playing in San Francisco. I went to go see him like 20, 30 times. I'd go see every show. He played it in the Bay Area a lot? Yeah, he played a lot. And if he played like in, you know, San Jose, San Francisco, and Oakland, I'd go to all three. Okay. Um, but anyway, I brought. I, I just posted it on my Patreon this morning. It's funny you asked. But I, brought, I, had a, I have a 62 Strat, and I brought it to the gig for him to sign. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I waited around and, uh, you know, waiting for some guy to let me in the dressing room. And the guy goes, "Okay, you can go in. And I went in and it just blew my mind that Roy Buchanan was there in 3D. (laughs) He was actually a real person. (laughs) Yeah. Like he could actually like turn his head and you'd see a different profile. Right. You know, it was just surreal. It was like like Lincoln coming alive or something. How big was he for you? Um, he was pretty big because, um, you know, I, I got, I got the first record when I was about 12 years old 
And I really like liked it. I mean, I loved it, but I really liked this song called Pete's Blues. And he, in it, he goes kind of Middle Eastern at the, like the five or six minute mark. To this day, I just think that's sublime. And uh, it really influenced me. Like some of the influences of Roy, like, um, aren't necessarily like uh, him playing Green Onions or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've maybe seen that clip of him playing Misty uh, from the PBS special, it's on YouTube. He did some things that were really groundbreaking, I think, to this day. I mean, so was his, you know, regular blues playing, of course, and his sound and his approach. Um, so, yeah, he was really big, uh, you know, a big influence. Um and and stuff like manipulating the tone knob and stuff was that was that derived from from seeing somebody like that? Yes, it was really. Uh, he made a huge impression, and why I'd go see him all the time is because it was before the internet. I mean, this is when you'd get like books like the blues playing of BB King, and it was absolute crap. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like. Like, I don't know, like a housewife in Utah wrote it or something, you know. I mean, not to be offensive, but you know what I mean. And I didn't know how anybody, you know, for example, like I remember seeing him hybrid pick. And I never, I mean, I just didn't know that was possible. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you just didn't see it. Right. And, uh and so there was that, the tone knob thing for sure. I think I had discovered the tone knob, the volume knob thing on my own somehow, or by, I knew what it, that was. But there was many things he did that I had to see from, you know, 10 feet away. And uh, another one was uh, he didn't really use a lot of vibrato sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it was vibrato less. It was vibrato free, and and it was uh, a more direct message. I mean, I even like. I mean, this was the '80s, like early '80s, and everybody had like a Lab Series amp and you know a, a, a signal processor. You know, um, so it was so naked sounding to me. Um, yeah. And uh, and the fact that he played a telly through whatever amp he had, you know, a lot of times it was a twin reverb. Man, it was loud. I bet. It's just way too loud. <laughs> um, but that that uh, that was unusual at the time, uh-huh. you know. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot from seeing him uh, play and, and the behind the nut bend thing I saw him do. And, right. and it was a very simple one, but I, I, I really, uh, made an impression. This is before instructional videos and all that. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, to see somebody play the guitar, you had to be there. So I don't, I don't want to take up all your, all your time. Uh, we've talked for a long time already, but I do want to ask you, um, in, in reference to some of your records, so you mentioned Dream Dictionary, which is one that I love, and another one that I love is Loose uh, and American Hip. So you know, like those sort of late '90s, early 2000s, up up until more recently, and there's a big, pretty wide range of sounds and approaches on those records. Um, I I just wondered if you could specifically talk for a few minutes about recording guitars and how you approach it. Like, 
you know, I, I can't imagine that you're overly picky in a live situation. You, you, you know, it's easy to find out your preferences with equipment and Princeton amps and all that kind of stuff on the internet. But as far as in on record, to me, like, especially maybe American hips, the guitar sound is so three dimensional. And I don't know, if you listen to it with headphones, it's a mind boggling guitar sound. Really? Uh, do, is that just you playing and you stuck a mic in front of it? Or or did you like really work on that guitar sound? And and can you elaborate on on the recorded guitar tones of your records? You know, I, I a lot of times I don't pay enough attention. But um, one thing I mean, that American Hips just had a good room. And American Hips is funny um, because, you know, when I, I recorded that when I came to New York. And I had a small cushion when I got here of money. And I think, you know, I think it was 10000 bucks or so. And because I had been here for a few months, it got down to eight, you know. And I had to record a record. Right. And... Unless I'm mistaken, I had overdubbed every record, like pretty much. Oh, wow. Okay. Like other than Live at the Denord. And so I was, I I, I thought, okay, I I, I only have the money to record a live record. I had the recording date set at Bedford Studios, which was a really nice room. And Darren Roven and a great engineer who I think recorded the records you liked, uh-huh. you know, that you mentioned, he, he was the engineer, if not the producer on a lot of those. So he was kind enough to come out here. Um, and I'll give some tangible tips in a sec. Um, but the day of the first day of a three day recording, I got food poisoning. Oh shit. And I went <laughs> to the, to, I mean, I had to go, you know, and, <laughs> And, uh, and there are tracks that are on that record that were recorded the first day where I was like so sick. Oh my God. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to ruin it for you, but you know, <laughs> this um, is American hips you're talking about. American hips. About the third day I started feeling human and we got a couple more tracks. I know we did, uh, ain't she sweet on day three and a couple other ones. I think, uh, like hello was on day three. Uh, but a lot of them, boy, I was like not feeling well. And, uh, but it was a really good room. Uh, and generally, not generally, I, I always do this. Uh, I mean, now, now I don't want baffles. Like I, I don't want to use headphones. Like uh, yeah, before yeah. I record, I say, look, I don't want to use headphones and I want as little leakage as possible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd, we'd uh, mic the front of the amp, the back of the amp, and have room mics. Um, and those were options. And if you're in a good room, it's a really good option. And then I reamp. And, uh, oh, okay. You, yeah, I, nobody ever asked me about this. And they just say, man, your Princeton sounds killer. And I kind of think, man, I guess it was a Princeton. Because <laughs> like, we reamped. And, you know, it depends on what the amp, I, I won't do is another Princeton. I've never done that. Sometimes there might be like a killing amp in the studio or I'll bring my deluxe. Um, so, so just to, just to interject. So you will, you will run a DI directly from your guitar into the, into the recording 
thing, whatever it may be, a computer or a tape machine, and go through your amps at the same time so that you can take that clean, unprocessed sound and st- send it through a different amp later. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. Um, okay. it, it, usually there's a DI from the amp, I think, is how okay. I works it. I, I never do that part of it. Excuse my ignorance, but... Um, or maybe it is the way you describe but it's it, it if it is i haven't noticed so we get that signal and then we create another track that's just that signal going through another amplifier generally leaning towards room miking okay that's really interesting actually yeah it's definitely the cherry on top i can't say like what percentage is not ori- original signal and what's yeah, reamping, yeah. but we blend them. And the other thing, I mean, I, ju- even to this day, like, I mean, uh, there's so, uh, I love plate reverb, yeah. you know, like, and if it's available, usually there's like a polite um, uh, argument about that I want too much, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, whatever everyone else likes for reverb i always like double it um but there's definitely plate reverb added Uh um after the fact you could really hear it on orange which i think orange might be one of my better guitar sounding records interesting yeah it's i mean i do a tune on there called blues for roy and i think yeah yeah boy that is one good guitar sound and that was recorded live like that's just you know we played and 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 that was it. But it's a really nice sound, and I love the set. You hear the room, you know, mm-hmm. uh, without it being uh, distracting. But that's generally how I'll record guitars. And and do you have do you have amps that you like to reamp through that aren't Princeton's? Oh yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I usually bring this one deluxe. I like. I really like deluxes. Sure. Um, and whenever I uh, tour, if I have a backline option, I always ask for a deluxe. I like the, and I really like those deluxe reissues. They started coming out in the '90s. I mean, I'm not saying this is like go buy one for ten thousand bucks, but on ten, they sound great. I know that you pin your amps, and and I know that it that takes the toll on tubes and 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 the the speakers and stuff like that. But what is it about, a, a, about say a Princeton or a deluxe that sounds better on 10 than it does on say four? Well, I, I Les Paul once said, if he sees a guitarist going to his amplifier, he knows he's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, basically it's a, you know, just, I, I don't want, I, I'll, it, I want to be able to control my sound from my guitar. Okay, so that's, I mean, it's its kind of a basic explanation. Um, and I like that I could use the headroom. I like that if, if it's a room that, you know, just won't allow 10 or, or, or I mic'd and that's even better. And it's a room that's big, but I mic'd and I yeah. hear it through the mains. I, I usually, we always say no monitors. Like uh-huh. that's our starting point. Uh, Cause I think once you start using monitors, unless there's a vocal group or something, we're an instrumental group. Um, it makes playing music harder, but I could get more sounds like cranking the volume and turning down the uh, tone. I could get mm-hmm. an organ sound. If the amp's on 10, 
You right. know, if the amp's on four, it's just going to sound like I took my treble off. But right. it's going to really woof. And it might not be super loud. It won't be like punish the audience. So I, I think I just like my options more when uh, the amp's on 10. And I never think an amp on 10 is really all that loud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the difference in volume between an amp on 5 and an amp on 10 isn't actually that much. But um, so how often when you are pinned like that, say on a deluxe, like it is pretty fucking loud. Uh, how often is your guitar pinned as well? Or are you mostly sitting down in the lower regions of the volume? Well, it would depend. Um, I mean, I I would say, you know, 50% of the time or something, just reviewing the kind of material I've written. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if it doesn't sound good, uh, like dimed, uh, on the guitar, then I'll just keep it at eight. And these are things I do intuitively. Yeah. Um, and it's going to change from room to room. Of course. Yeah. You know, uh, or, or, uh, like, uh, whatever your flooring is certainly as a big part of it. Um, you know, is it carpet? Is it wood, which is best? I yeah. keep my amp on the floor. I like that. Um, yeah. and if it's concrete, you're doomed. Right. You know, so, but yeah, it's, it's probably 50% of the time, depending on the gig. I mean, if I, I just recorded a duet record with Luca Benedetti, it's all in the can. I just can't, I don't want to release it yet. But uh, I, even if there was no coronavirus, I was thinking November. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I I think I put my Princeton on four, for example, because I didn't want hiss. Right, right. Because we were recording. So it's not like no matter what, but if I'm doing, if I'm playing a club, man, that amp's on 10. Okay, cool. I dig it. I dig it. I don't, I, um, and, and as as far as your recordings go, the differences between, um, you know, say a record like American hips and then a more recent one, like dream dictionary, has your approach changed much? Cause your tone has, but has your, is that just more, in your fingers and the way that you're playing or has, has your, the way that you recorded your guitar changed at all? I mean, certainly things have changed and, and possibly evolved. I hope so. Um, I mean, after dream dictionary, uh, I think the honey fingers record came out. Yep. And after the honey fingers record came out live, live at Rockwood came out. Okay. So, those are going to sound different no matter right. what, you know, um, the Honeyfingers record, um, was more of a crafted project and overdubs were possible. And I mm-hmm. planned on overdubbing every song with the damned perfect lead, you know, uh, yeah. that would, you know, I'd be like, that was perfect. And it ended up I didn't do that. And it was, <laughs> but that was the intention. It was my intention. But everything sounded pretty good live. Like, I mean, we it was really easy, that band, man. I mean, we had three days planned, and I think we finished the middle of the, the second day. But that said, there were some overdubs later, um, and, uh, you know, other parts were added. You know, it's at times it's a lush sounding record. I included Lola, My Baby's Coming Home on Best Of, 
because I love that song so much. It sounds like a Burt Bacharach tune or something, you know, guitar. So, I mean, that's going to sound much different than, and I know this is an obvious answer and you didn't ask such an obvious question, but then live at Rockwood, you know, where the sound guys at Rockwood recorded us and at times like we didn't get enough cymbals or, you know, the room mic wasn't working. And, you know, there, I don't believe there was a direct out. And uh, I purposely, I didn't want all that necessarily, but I knew that I was making a well-crafted record and I knew the record I wanted to make after that was a, you know, uh, over-the-top live record. Because some of my favorite recordings are like the worst quality ever. You know, like, I mean, I remember I saw Stanley Clark like in like 1978 and he had Ray Gomez on guitar and I taped it on like this cassette recorder I brought into the the, the gig. And man, I like the love You that. love it. I think it could be a record. Yeah, yeah. And there's guys going, yeah. I mean, even the Brisbane Bop record. Have you heard that, Steve? The, I have, yeah. It, it's not the greatest sounding record of all time, that's for it's sure. It's terrible. Yeah. It's a terrible, and you hear guys going like, hey, Lil, and stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, but the music's really good. And sometimes that's just really the bottom line, and that's what I wanted Rockwood to be. Um, was, was that all done in one night or is that a, over a couple nights at the Rockwood? Oh, it was like over many, 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 many nights. They were oh, okay. like every Monday. And, you know, I couldn't really make the record I wanted to because um, I wanted In a Sentimental Mood on there and a, a song called Denise. But every time we played it well, uh, mics went out. Oh, and we, shit. Yeah. Um I mean, the other side of the coin is like literally that in this day and age, like, uh, you know, I have to really keep an eye eye on the budget. Of course. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think I did that much on a loose, you know, we a table for one was like a fairly expensive record. Um, Orange was kind of an expensive record. But since then, I you know, since Spotify and all that, yeah. uh, it, you know, I really got to prioritize, well, how can I make what I hope is a great record as cheap as possible? As cheap as possible. Yep. You know, there's so many. I, I wish I could make three records a year, really. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean, and I'm sure you could. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I definitely would do a solo record, and there's this Luca duet record record i would love to do a record with steve cardness um you know, I, I love that um suppose song on dream dictionary that's just solo acoustic guitar that's super cool you should do a record like that sometime oh man thanks a lot thank you i you know i forgot about that tune and uh just played with steve in january for the first time in like three years and i lo- i found our old set list you know because i keep them and because i sometimes i remember the song but i don't remember that i know the song mm-hmm do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. So the set, old set lists are really important. And I saw Suppose, and I actually had to relearn it from my own lesson by mail. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah.
like I wanted it to be like classical gas and I failed miserably, but it ended up being a pretty good acoustic, you know, yeah. track. Yeah. I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but, um, let's, uh, let's call it there. I, I, I really, um, have loved having you on here, man. Thank you so much. Oh, it was so fun. It was so good, Steve. I really appreciate it. I just looked at the time and we've been talking. <laughs> it's been a while. Like almost two hours. Okay. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay. Have a good day. All right. You too. Okay, bye. Stay safe. Bye. All right, music nerds. That was my conversation with Jim Campolongo. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers.